Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. We have a very special series today called Stuart Squared. I'm inviting my father, Stuart Alsop II, and he is inviting various people that he knew from his period of doing journalism in the 1980s, 1990s, and early 2000s as the computing, personal computing revolution revolutionized everything we thought we knew. Now we stand at the precipice of a whole new revolution, the AI revolution. And this revolution, for me personally, I'm excited to hear whether my dad agrees with me, whether he disagrees with me, whether the people that he knew agrees with me or disagrees with me, and kind of get that really beautiful tension out there uh, so that you guys can benefit from clashing views about this revolution that we're heading into, which is called the AI revolution, uh, which many people think is hyped, absolutely is hyped. We are in a bubble. There's no doubt about it. But when that bubble pops, no one knows. Uh, And what part of it pops, no one knows. So we're going to find out and we're going to learn these lessons from the personal computing industry, from the internet, from the mobile revolutions. We're going to take these lessons from these great anecdotes that are just lost to history. Uh, And we're going to find those anecdotes. We're going to bring them to you. You're going to benefit. We're going to benefit. Everybody's going to win. And we're going to get through this revolution. We're going to enjoy this revolution as it happens. Uh, Please find us on Spotify, iTunes, and YouTube by searching for Crazy Wisdom. I'm always available for DMs. I'll get right back to you. Really excited to hear what you think about this episode, uh, what, what really resonated with you, whether you agree, whether you disagree. Everything's on the table. Welcome to a special edition of the Crazy Wisdom podcast called Stuart Squared. Uh, where both myself and my father, Stuart Alsop II, are going to be introducing people uh, and interviewing people from the personal computing era and then applying the lessons today. And today we have a special guest, Donna Dubinsky, who's been spending her time on the CHIPS Act recently and while working at Numenta and was the CEO of Palm and Handspring. Uh, Tons of wisdom for us to talk about today, about what it was like in the 90s. All these things from my memory as I was probably six or seven years old are probably going to come out. And uh, and so I'm really excited to to dig in and welcome to the show. I'll let my dad take it over from here. Yeah, it's just pretty funny because before we uh, started, uh, Stuart asked if he was if uh, you spoke Donna at the agenda that he attended. I took each of my kids to one agenda when I was producing it, and I was sitting there going, "I I can't tell you actually." Um, I remember the presentation distinctly, and I remember Stuart being there, but I couldn't put the two together in the same uh, thought. But I, I kind of want to start there, Donna, because. Uh, what I remember is that you gave a presentation at Agenda, which I still remember. I, I can't give the whole presentation, but I've got the essence of it. And the title was Size Really Matters. And um, I kind of want to see if you remember that and if you remember kind of what that meant, which was really talking about, you know, if computing is going to um, evolve, then it has to be small enough to fit in your pocket. And I think that's kind of what you were talking about. Yeah, well, thanks. Uh, first of all, let me see. It's it's great to be here. It's great to see Stuart the second again and to meet Stuart the third. Uh, what what fun to put this together. Um, Stuart, I remember it well. Um, first of all, the agenda conferences were the highlights of our year. They were the place where everybody gathered, anybody who was anybody. And uh, it was such an important time for us. 
Um, the the speech that I gave then, which you gave me an award for, by the way, and and the prize for the award was to do another speech, which I was never quite sure that was a great idea. But anyway, that was the prize. I got to do a speech the next year as well. But um, the speech was actually titled, as I recall, Size Matters, One Woman's Perspective, just to be a little provocative about <laughs> yeah, it. Much better. Uh, there are not being many women um, speaking on the stage in those days. Um, but um, the argument was that there were sort of three valid form factors and there were kind of dead spaces in between and that those form factors had to do with the physical reality of how you carry and interact with devices. So there was a form factor that was on your desktop, too big to carry with you. That was one form factor. There was a form factor in your briefcase, and that was kind of the notebook form factor, and that made sense. And then there was a form factor in your pocket or in your purse. And that those were sort of three peaks of where the volumes would be. And that we just didn't imagine that the form factors in between those, if it was too big to carry in your pocket or purse, um, then you might as well carry it in your briefcase, you might as well carry a notebook. Now, I think we were right to some extent. We were certainly right that the uh, form factor on your person became extremely important and, and uh, you know, became really dominant. Um, we were a little wrong about how the dead spaces were in between. I, I mean, something like the iPad is in that dead space and has done pretty well, though nowhere near as dominant as the other two as a notebook. Uh -huh. or, so it's still less than the notebook or your handheld. The handheld also has grown more than I would have expected. A lot of people are carrying them on ones that are not fitting in your shirt pocket. You know, they're still fitting in your purse, but not quite your shirt pocket anymore. So I don't know how men carry those. You should tell me that. But um, anyway, I it was really about relating the physicality of the form factor to the usage was the was the hypothesis. And I, I think you were fundamentally right. And that's one of the reasons I remember that uh, presentation. And a lot of people do remember you giving that presentation <laughs> at Agenda. So one of the phenomena that, uh, that I know is... <clears throat> The personal computer industry was an industry. It was like a community, right? And, and we would gather at Agenda or a PC forum or in various places. And uh, that doesn't exist anymore. And I, you know, I wonder, I wonder how you feel about that. I people say you should go do, do Agenda again because we had so much fun there. And I go, I don't think there's a community anymore that would would go to an Agenda and have the kind of fun that we had there. Uh, really, now the whole computer industry is distributed and is everything and we carry them in our pockets and you know it's embedded in servers and in the cloud and you know the whole thing's changed and i wonder how you feel about that well i, I certainly agree that you know computing isn't everything now everything is computing i talk about this a lot in my work on the chips act that you know that isn't about trying to invest in the future of the chips industry that's about investing in the future of everything I mean, yeah. chips are in our doorbells, chips are in our pacemakers, chips are in our scooters. I mean, chips enable everything. And so to some extent, you're right. What is the computer industry anymore when the computer industry is everything? Um, at the same time, there are certainly leading companies doing technology. And part of it, honestly, Stuart, is that, you know, uh, it's the next generation. It's not our generation. It's not us. Yeah, and, yeah there's next generation <laughs> leaders and they get together and they know each other. They're similar sort of interactions as we had in the day with our 
cohort. So I think um, there is, uh, you know, a cohort. It's just um, the next generation cohort. Yeah, that's how we can sit around and be wise and feel good about it and give direction to the younger generation. But our time has come and gone. So um, I saw this statistic recently, and I, I kind of want to ask, you know, where you fit in this. Apple last year sold more smartphones than anyone else, which is really, particularly from our perspective, when everybody thought Apple was like a has been for a good portion of the time, that they now sell more smartphones than Samsung does, uh, even though Samsung is based on Android and, uh, and an open standard. And it really... It really goes beyond the fact that the that the business has changed. So, do you use Apple devices? You used to work at Apple, and you know, you went off crazy for a little while. But have you come back to the fold? Uh, well, there's so many questions in there. Um, first, <laughs> I guess, uh, I guess what I would say is that um, wow, what a a business story of our lifetimes has been the Apple story from early leader way ahead of everybody and thinking about this stuff. And I was there in the early years, just to say I was an Apple employee from, you know, 81 to 91, roughly. Oh. And so, um, you know, I was there through those years and what an amazing time and, you know, basically paving the way for everything that came later and then into an incredible trough and nearly going out of business and being on the brinks. I mean, I don't think people realize how close that company was to extinction, to total dominance. I mean, how many business stories can you look at through the years that have achieved uh, what Apple achieved in terms of two distinct waves of leadership at, at the scale they have? So it's it's quite an amazing story and a tribute to the, the people who made that happen. So, you know, we, we should definitely say that. In terms of my own personal use, it's funny because after I left Apple, I kind of went away from Apple. I went back to using a PC and then at um, Handspring, when we created the first smartphones, uh, we did, uh, you know, not base them on, on Apple in any way. So we partnered with, uh, you know, people more on the sort of uh, CDMA standards and, um, you know, other, other partners there. And so I went away from that for years and years. I think I, I used a Samsung for years. And then I've just kind of in the last couple of years come back to using an, an iPhone uh, it's partly because, you know, my whole family is using an iPhone and there's so much sharing that happens with the photos and, you know, grand nephews photos and stuff like that. And so, you know, it's fun to be in that environment again. And it's it's weird. I have a PC and I have an iPhone and, I'm, and you know, they don't work as well together as obviously if you were on one standard, but they're not bad. So right. it's, it's OK. So I, I manage it. It's fun. So that's oh. what I do today. Well, that's good to know. That's good to know. I know uh, uh, Stuart here wants to get into the conversation. <laughs> well, so uh, Donna, were you at Apple when Steve Jobs was fired? Uh, yes, I was at Apple when Steve left. I don't know if I'd characterize oh. it as, as fired. Um, a complicated story. Um, I was actually kind of in the middle of it. There's a famous uh, case study at Harvard Business School about those years Um I was one of the people in the whole distribution channel running warehouses and IT systems and stuff like that. And Steve decided that we were the impediment to the success of the Mac, which was not the case at all. It was basically a way to deflect 
attention from the product issues onto something else. And um, he kind of came at us with full force to dismantle our distribution network, which in my view would have shut us down because our distribution network was actually functioning quite well. So there's a whole big story about that. The end of, of the story is that Steve leaves um, and, and this is like a surprise in the case. So when it's taught, it's like, you know, the fact that Steve is coming after me and in the end of the day, Steve leaves, not me, is like peculiar as far as the students are concerned. But, you know, the underlying cause there is that it was about something else. It wasn't about me at all. It was um, about this, um, you know, the company was really struggling and the Mac was struggling. And um, it was, you know, it was something that was well above my pay grade at the time. But, yeah, it was quite it was quite an interesting transition. Well, there's two ways we could go. We could ask you, what was it like to have the full force of Steve Jobs uh, 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 attacking you or whatever? Uh, but then the other the other question I want to ask my dad is like, what's your characterization of that time period? What happened according to your opinion? Yeah, technically Steve did leave, but he was sent to Siberia <laughs> first. And he, he was like, oh, I'm not going to hang out in Siberia. I'm going to go off and do something else. And, uh, and he started Next Computer. Which, just as an anecdote, I, I have a tendency to gamble, not formally, but I make bets with people. And I made a bet that Next would be a billion-dollar company. Well, it kind of is true because Apple bought Next, and the Next OS became the, the platform. And so now it's more than a trillion-dollar company. So I'm pretty sure that the Next part of it is worth more than a billion. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you credit on that. I'll give you credit. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so no, but... Uh, uh, and there's a, a view out there that, that Steve went off and started next and learned his lessons because he came back to Apple a different person and uh, and much more competent as a leader. And in fact, there's a, a whole story about the, the leadership program that he instituted at Apple, uh, which was, I think Fortune was the only one that ever wrote a story about it, um, where he basically taught people, don't be normal. <laughs> <laughs> the company succeeds to the degree that, you know, you elevate the talent and get rid of the non-talent and that you really focus on what it is that a company needs. But that's a whole other topic. And uh, so I, I want to ask this question of Donna, which is you gave this presentation that was really thoughtful that we just already talked about um, from a woman's perspective that size really matters. And I wonder if you would comment on how, what's the equivalent metaphor for AI, particularly, you know, in this time when people have gone up? I, I do remember when I got in the business in the early 80s, there was an AI bubble going on. And there's oh, been several AI bubbles along the way. But this one is like completely amazing because, you know, now open AI is worth how many billions of dollars. And you've been running a company that has been doing AI for 50 if, since 2015, not for 15 years. 2005. Yeah. And uh, and here you are. I've been doing AI and doing fundamentally generative AI and beyond generative AI, you know, this uh, thousand brains thing. But uh, uh, how do you how do you think about this AI? And do you have a, a bon mot, a phrase that would character would crystallize what's going to happen? Oh, gosh, I don't know that I've got a handy, <laughs> no uh, <pressure. laughs> handy metaphor or analogy, but um, but I, I will say, I think you point to, 
you know, a really interesting and important point, which is that, you know, there is a long history of some of these things. People, some people are sitting around saying, oh, this AI stuff, it came out of nowhere and what is it and so on and so forth. And, you know, there have been waves and waves of attempts at AI going back to the very early days of computing where, I mean, we had, we said, we used to have a quote on our wall at Numenta from Ada Lovelace, who was speculating that the right way to build AI would be to uh, mimic the brain and how the brain works. And so, you know, not, not to mention, Donna, that uh, Alan Turing came up with the Turing test in the 1940s, right? So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and Ada Lovelace was in the 1800s. So, you know, 1800s, people have yeah. been thinking about this uh, for a long time. There have been ways of symbolic AI and expert systems, and there's been um, lots and lots of work over many years of many brilliant people to figure out, um, you know, how to make computing more, uh, more durable, less brittle, you know, um, lots of interesting ideas and characteristics. Our work at Numenta has for many years been based on, you know, my partner, Jeff Hawkins, you know, well, Stuart, um, my, um, based on his work on the brain and understanding the brain. I mean, Jeff decided as a young man that the only actual proof point of intelligence we have is the human brain. So the place to start to figure out how to make intelligent machines is to study the brain. Not that we want to replicate a brain, but what can we learn from it of what should be replicated and what doesn't need to be replicated in order to create truly intelligent systems. And so our mission at Numenta has been twofold for the, I'm afraid it, it is almost like 18, 19 years, not, uh, not uh, from 2015, from earlier. And, um, I, you know, our mission has been twofold. One is understand how the brain works. And secondly, how can we apply that to computing for good to create more robust computing? I mean, you think about um, all of the brittleness of computers in this AI stuff, whether it's uh, hallucinations or missing obvious things or whatever, things that humans would never do. How is the human brain so much more uh, robust than our computing platforms today? So, so that's what our work has been about, figuring out how to make this stuff um, more brain-like in the right ways. Uh, again, not having to copy the brain. I mean, Jeff likes to use the analogy when the Wright brothers figured out how to make machines that fly, um, you know, he stu they studied birds intensively and they took some things from birds, like having wings, but some things they didn't. The wings don't flap. You know, they have different kind of propulsion instead of flapping wings. They ended up with engines. Um, so, but they learned about lift. They learned about, you know, the basic principles of flight from observing birds. So, so that's what we do learn about the principles of the brain. And the principles of the brain are actually very different than the AI that's going on today. And um, our belief at Numenta is that um, the work that's being done today is I would characterize it roughly as brute force. I mean, mm. it's throwing a lot of data and a lot of compute yep. at the problem. It's solving problems. It's doing real work. Uh, kudos, you know, not to diminish that at all. But it isn't actually the path to intelligence. Intelligence right. the way we think. So I really want to ask you about this because where this all started is Stuart interviewed your new CEO, um, the former CTO of Nementa. And, and I listened to that and that, that, was a transformational moment for me, so I have to I have to give give you credit now once again through uh, through the company. But the the thing I picked out of that was that 
it won't really work until it's real time. And uh, right now you have to go and you brute force, you know, build these large language models and you build them and then they sit there for a long time and it's basically batch processing. It's like having going back into the mainframe, uh, but in a modern context. And so, yeah, you can get value out of this, but it actually won't be AI, real AI, or however you want to talk about it, you know, maybe AGI or artificial general intelligence, but the uh, until the, uh, the computing system can operate at the same speed that the brain does. That's the, that's the thing I got out of that interview that you sort did. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I wonder how, you know, are you, you're still working on that, right? If I understand it, Nementa is still working on doing that. Uh, and yet, you know, open, open AI is valued at, I don't know, 80 billion or some, some huge number. I, I've kind of lost track because, Okay, and they have a billion of revenue just from charging twenty dollars a month, as far as I can tell. Mm. And uh, so, you know, do you feel like it's passing you by? Is there something that you know you need to grab a hold of here that uh, that will ultimately show that Nemento was right in the first place? <laughs> well, you know, we we are very long term thinkers and players, so we don't kind of worry about whatever the current hype cycle is uh, because uh, we know it's going to come. That's one of the advantages of being older. I mean, we know it's going to come and go. So what? whatever. Um, I, I think what, what we've looked at in the last few years is our ideas about the brain and how the brain works uh, do create some, um, you know, huge uh, opportunities that can be valuable, even if we just insert bits of it in the current generation of AI, because they are, um, they are hitting roadblocks and costs and issues that are like um, enormous. So one, for example, is this question of energy. I mean, the way they're running these brute force models is running server farms, you know, day and night around the world. And they can't throw enough GPUs as it, you know, there's a shortage of GPUs. Um, it's costing a fortune and it's burning huge amounts of energy. The wattage that it goes through in order to do those calculations, people have no idea when they're doing fun little chat GPT things, uh, how much energy they're using. So all the people who are concerned about sustainability and zero carbon and all that stuff are going in the totally opposite direction as they use these things. But your brain operates on the equivalent of like a 40 watt light bulb. Yeah, that's the number I had, yeah. How is it that your brain does the same thing more robustly than these models, but with a fraction of the energy? So we have ideas on that and we've applied those ideas. We've announced some work, for example, with Intel where we show about how we can dramatically reduce the amount of energy used in, um, in a large language model. Now that isn't, you know, the full intelligence model, that isn't the way to where we see the endpoint, but it is taking some of the key insights and trying to apply them to improve the current generation of AI to make it more efficient. Another one is the example that you used from Subitai's uh, talk with uh, Stuart Three there, which is this question of what we call online learning and the idea that all these models are batched. So if you want to retrain the model for you know, the current environment and and news that's happening today, which is, I mean, the acceleration of news today is unbelievable. Um, Then you have to totally retrain that thing. And it's like a billion dollar cost to totally retrain that thing. That doesn't happen with your brain. Your brain is learning every day. You're learning from me right this moment. So, you know, you don't retrain your whole brain to learn what I'm telling you today. 
So we have lots of ideas about how you can incorporate online learning into deep learning models. Uh, that'll be another idea that we think we can seep in and inject in. So rather than sort of taking a path of we're going whole hog on our own independent AI model, we're saying sort of a Trojan horse thing. Right. How do we infiltrate the existing models, which have a dead end and a clear problems in terms of their, you know, hitting massive costs and energy use and move them in the direction that that we think is the right direction. So that that's a little bit more our approach these days. So, and you've yeah. got such I, an- I have to hand it back to okay, right here. Yeah. I'm not gonna do it too much. Uh, so, and you've had such an interesting career in mobile uh, and, 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 and in computing as well. And so what does it look like to have AI on our phones? Like what, what taking, taking from your history of seeing the computing going on phones, what is it gonna look like to have AI on our phones? Well, you know, it's kind of an interesting um, example of the problem I was just saying in terms of the brute force methods today of, of the AI environment. They can't run it on your phone. When you're doing AI on your phone, you're hitting a big server somewhere um, and, and it isn't really a client solution today. We've actually demonstrated our technology on the scale of processors that operate in your phone. Wow. And, and you could actually do stuff like that on your phone, which will enable a whole new generation of uh, IoT kind of uh, applications on the client side that uh, will, I could never be, be able to imagine what they are, honestly, because it's like, it, I like to say when we created handheld computing, we never imagined Uber. We didn't, we didn't say we're here to revolutionize the taxi industry. You know, I mean, who could have imagined that? But we created the tools and the platforms that other people innovated on top of and created these things. So right now, AI in your device is AI in the cloud. Yep. And I think the question to ask is, if you really could get some of these things uh, on your device, uh, how would they be different? And, uh, and I'm not sure I know the answer to that, but I know they will be different. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's really interesting. Uh, Dad, if you have a question, go go for it. But otherwise, I'll... Yeah, no, I was going to say, I, 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 you know, based on what I, what I heard in that uh, podcast and what I've read and understood about Nementa, I think the fundamental idea is, goes right back to... Do you remember John Scully did a video? What was it called? He called it something. Knowledge right? Navigator. The Knowledge, knowledge navigator. navigator. Thank you. Yeah. That, you know, and it wouldn't necessarily be embedded in the device, but it would be a, a presence uh, around you that would be a companion to you and an, an assistant. You know, there's some organizations that ban the use of uh, phones in meetings because they think that people are being distracted but I'm sitting there right now already, and this is just with Google. I'm not using ChatGPT or anything, keeping track of what people are saying and checking on them. And, you know, that's a very primitive level of the phone as an intelligent assistant. But I imagine that, you know, this thing could become, you know, pretty much like you, right, at a, at a level. And you start developing a relationship with it way beyond what people are worried about with social media right now. And I, I could, so that's kind of what I imagine um, it's, and I wonder, I keep going, you know, okay, so Sam Altman and he's invested in an AI device company. And I go like, why, why would you need a different device to do AI? <laughs> I can't, mm. other than, you know, maybe you don't need a keyboard or a screen. I don't know. I can't figure mm. that out. Do you have any idea about that? 
Now, I am the last person to be asking about product directions. There's other people that you would want to get for that. But I, I just I just do think there will be, you know, all sorts of clever things. You know, I was in an Uber the other day and I said something to the uh, driver. Turns out the driver didn't speak a word of English. I think he spoke Chinese. <laughs> and he took out his phone. He talked some Chinese into it. He turned it to me and he hit play and it translated for me. Well, I said something back. He turned it back to himself. He translated it back to himself. I hadn't seen that before. I'm like, that rocks. That is so cool. Now I'm thinking that's happening in the cloud. Now, what if that could happen on the device? Because uh, that would be amazing in disconnected environments where you can't get to the cloud, where you've got latency issues, where you've got, you know, what a tremendous capability. So I'm more, you know, on the practical, pragmatic side. It's like, okay, there's going to be all these really cool things you can do, the more functionality you can put on the device side. And I'm less about the, you know, I don't know, the the assistants or the helpers or friends or, you know, what the, the, the those aspects are going to be. I just know there's uh, an amazing um, community of clever developers and innovators and next generation developers and innovators that are going to be thinking of, um, you know, fabulous things to enrich our lives that are based on this technology. Okay. I'll be way past what we can think of. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I would love to go back, back into history, because, Dad, you had mentioned uh, mainframe. Uh, I actually still, even though I've grown up with you talking about mainframes and there was some sort of bet you lost where you had to eat your lunch because you predicted the end of the mainframe. Uh, many of my listeners might also not know what a what a what a what a mainframe is. What is a mainframe? Why was it important? What was it what was it like to interact with this computing world back then before the Internet, just with these like large machines? I know you're asking me that question. I hope you're asking Donna. Oh, but okay. Yes, I, my words. It's a. <laughs> well, okay, Donna. Think, what, yeah, what do you think? Stuart, Stuart three. It's Stuart two. You start. Stuart two. You start. <laughs> so uh, the the fun part of that was, yeah, I, I just make trouble. I tell people that I've learned how to uh, establish a career out of making trouble, and so that was my job is to make trouble. And so when I was at Infowall, I wrote a column and said that the mainframe would cease to exist or die or something, some extreme uh, language on April 15th of 1996, something like that. And uh, I'm pretty sure that was then because you know, after that, after that, I went and became a VC, <coughs> whole different form of making trouble. But the, uh, and IBM felt, was so offended by this that in its annual report, it showed a picture of me eating my words and and uh, it was the word mainframe and I was eating the E. And uh, <laughs> so it's a, it's a actually in the Computer History Museum. Somebody somebody sent me a photo of this. And the, uh, so yeah, I'm famous for being wrong, <laughs> you know? But uh, no, the, re the, re the real question is the mainframe is, has migrated. And, and so really, for you, Stuart, mm. the right way to understand this is exactly what Donna was talking about, is that mm. computing is everywhere, right? And the devices don't matter anymore. It actually doesn't really matter if you have an IBM PC or, oh, I don't think they make it PCs anymore anyway, um, and uh, or a Macintosh or whatever computer. I mean, Google even has these Chromebooks that, you know, really aren't a computer. And uh, 
you know, and it's everywhere, regardless of where you are. And so um, mainframe, I could argue like I did that I was right about, uh, what was it that I was right about? But anyway, that, that ultimately I'm right because the mainframe just disappeared. And, you know, even if it's, oh, that's right. I, rather than saying that the mainframe died, I should have said that all mainframes or all computers would be run by microprocessors because the mainframe was really distinguished by not being a microprocessor-based um. device. Aren't there still mainframes in use, Stuart? I'm thinking like the big banks and the airline industries, and I think they've all put layers on top of them of modern stuff and modern architectures yeah. and modern UI. But I think well, you know, when they talk about uh, when they talk about um, well, you know, building large language models, um, you know, that's a flat file. It's really pretty interesting if you dive into it. But the data that large language models are derived from is really a flat file. It's not a relational database and it's not any of that kind of uh, structure for data. And uh, so they're just huge flat files that they're operating against uh, using these GPUs. And the, and the GPUs are graphics processing units. So they just reapplied uh, technology for making graphics and, and doing streaming and stuff like that to just processing huge amounts of data. It's all being done with microprocessors now, right? There are no non-microprocessors. What, what do you call a, a processor that was not micros? <laughs> mm. you know, they don't exist anymore. So the concept of mainframe being a remote service is now virtualized completely into these server architectures that are highly distributed. Um, and I, I mean, that's pretty amazing. The first time I heard about the power problem was actually like 15 years ago when my partner Gilman Louie came into our, one of our partner meetings and said, pay attention. The real problem now is that uh, compute's going to take so much power that they're having to build specialized power plants for them, right? And he referred specifically to the, in the Northwest, because Amazon was one of the first to do this, and Microsoft, who started building a server farm next to a river so they could use hydroelectric power to, to run it. And I remember him saying this and going, God, Come on, Gilman. <laughs> That's just not going to happen <laughs> where we are That's now. That's a big issue. But, you know, I'll, I'll say a few more things in terms of mainframes and the history um, as to Stuart 3's uh, question. But, um, you know, there's been a long history in computing of sort of reshaping client-server architecture. I mean, you started out with big mainframes. That's the all, And the only people could afford those because they were massive, massively expensive were very big corporations, the government for the most part. And then, you know, it evolved to kind of a client-server model where there was a whole time-sharing system where you could access those mainframes. Then those mainframes evolved in a sort of minis, which were, you know, able to distribute a little bit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then we got to desktops and ultimately handhelds. But then when we got to the the POM, you know, before the POM, the handhelds were court, were sort of, smaller and smaller versions of what existed before. The Palm in a way went back to a client server model because it said, you know, we're not going to try to do everything on the Palm. For example, a radical notion, it seems obvious now, but a radical notion was we didn't print. We didn't support printing from the Palm. Uh -huh. And all the prior small devices had to support printing, which meant having all the printer drivers and testing them all. And it was like incredibly expensive to support printing. We said, no, 
This is a window onto your PC. It's a client to the PC and your PC prints perfectly well. We don't need to replicate that functionality in the device. So it was back to a different kind of a client server model. So, um, you know, we're seeing that again. And what I talked about earlier about, can we go back to apportioning some of this next generation of AI to the client or not? How do we distribute it from the, the handheld to the desktop, to the server farm, uh, these are evolving things as the technology evolves of how we uh, apportion that. Up. So it's, you know, it's it's continuing to uh, move forward. I mean, it's an interesting history with an interesting history. I have to recommend to your listeners that if people are interested in the history of computing, because there certainly is a, it's a very rich history. It's not that long. I mean, people are kind of surprised. I mean, computing is 60, 70 years old, not much longer than that, modern computing. And, um, you know, that's a blink of an eye in human history and in, in our lifetime, Stuart, second and me. Um, and so, you know, from the time we were born to today, the whole world mm -hmm. has changed. Everything about transportation, about medicine, about entertainment, about you name the field has changed as a result of this uh, industry and this technology. Uh, so it's been very fast. Um, but it's been very rich and very interesting. So I want to recommend your listeners, if they're interested in this, to check out the Computer History Museum, which my husband was a part of founding. And um, it's in, in Mountain View. It is well worth a visit. And if you can't go in person, they have a phenomenal online presence. But uh, to learn a little bit about uh, the history of computing, because um, it's it's a fascinating story of, of individuals, of teams, of successes, of failures, of changes in these things like client server architecture it's it's well worth uh spending some time reading up on and you so, get to see a picture of me eating my words yes <laughs> might be worth it alone uh uh dono and and my dad whoever wants to answer this question the first uh be feel free for uh so you, you guys mentioned that there's a there was a small community everybody knew each other you were doing these conferences everybody who was everybody was there uh now we're in this world where technology has eaten everything as mark andreessen has said and and so going back to that initial time what was it like to feel like i imagine that there was a sort of a flavor of being punk rockers because not many people were paying attention to this world. Uh, so is that assessment accurate? And what did it feel like to be in that small community that was doing something that a lot of people were just kind of like, oh, like, what is what is that stuff? You guys are just a bunch of nerds. And then and then also to where we are today, where it, you guys were proven right. Well, I'll take a crack at it, then turn it over to Stuart. But, uh, you know, I, I would say you know, most of my friends and relatives and associates, they were like, they had no idea what I was doing for those early years. It was definitely a uh, sort of a, a community apart a little bit. It, it's like, you know, mainframes used to be in raised floor, locked rooms, you know, computing was not on your desk. Computing was done by gods in uh, someplace else. And, um, you know, the industry was transitioning from that to being um, dispersed through to everybody. And, you know, over my career, I, you know, I saw this happening. I mean, I saw people getting Apple computers and Apple IIs for the first time in education. And that was a revelation to people that they could use these tools. And, you know, at Palm, well, Stuart, remember this well, when we introduced the Palm, uh, we had our moms. Part had of the agenda, industry. by the way. That agenda. Uh, it was a huge moment. We had, um, it was uh, Jeff Hawkins, my uh, business partner of many years, and Ed Colligan, my other business partner of many years. The three of us drafted our moms to be part of the effort to introduce a pilot. So 
they were there uh, running around taking orders from people and uh, had little uh, had the little signs saying mom's for pilot and, you know, a little badge. I'm Donna's mom. I'm Ed's mom, whatever. Um, and it was it was fun. It was different, but it was trying to convey a message. It's like computing is for everybody now. You know, it's it's not those raised floor gods and gurus anymore. Uh, computing is for everybody. And that was the message in that that launch approach, which I, I thought was fun and effective. And um, our moms, by the way, they we told them we were going to have a contest of who could sell the most. And um, as, I, as I recall, Ed's mom took this very seriously. And Jeff's mom and my mom said, enough with that. We're going to go sit by the pool, you know, <laughs> with a drink. Yeah, yeah. that's funny. Yeah. This this is a core part of it. It's like it, it was fun, and that was that was part of agenda, of course. Too we 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 tried to have fun as a group, but the and it was an inside group. I always thought of it as kind of a fraternity. I I missed the whole fraternity thing because you know I went to school in nineteen seventy seventies early seventies, and and uh, and you know fraternities had kind of fallen apart after the flower power days, and. Uh, so I went through school and didn't even know what a fraternity was. But here I got into this business and it felt just like a fraternity. It was like all my buddies are hanging out and, and talking about doing fun stuff and changing the world. That was a core part of the the ideal here. And I, you know, when in uh, 1981, I I bought an Apple II because I was working at Inc. Magazine. And, I, you know, Inc. Magazine, we wrote about computers and our readership scores on computer articles were like in the tank. So I, I hate it writing and editing articles about computers because it was deadly boring and you know there were counting machines and you know the people in the white coats had to take care of them and then we started getting these articles about you know this is like other industry new industry coming and and it hadn't wasn't even called the personal computer industry it was called the microcomputer business and the um and i so i went out and bought an apple ii and put it up put it together on my dining room table and figured out how to use it. So the idea that I, an English major who knew nothing about technology, could buy a computer and set it up and start at that time using spreadsheets, uh, VisiCalc, um, to do business, that was like astonishing. So we put it on the cover of Inc. And and for me, that was it. <laughs> you know, they fired me from Inc. So then I had, went and started working in the computer business. And that's where I've been ever since. And uh but that those early days were like a fraternity, and and so that was what I feel proud about with Agenda is that I created a kind of annual meeting of the fraternity. Wouldn't let the press people in, wouldn't let the PR people in. You had to be running a company or doing something important, and uh, it's by invitation only. So uh, I've kind of missed that, uh, and that's why people say, you know, why don't you start doing Agenda again? And I go, but yeah, but who would belong? Who's in the fraternity? We're all in the fraternity now. It's the entire eight billion people in the world are now participating in this this revolution. And it is true. We are all, you know, even if you're a poor person, you know, all of the technology has reached out to third world countries, and you know, now we get to watch everything going on. And in fact, that's a fundamental problems. So I actually want to turn it to Donna because you've been working on the Chips Act and and. Uh, you know, it's it's a pretty interesting thing that in the span of time that we've been in the business, um, you know, we started with we had foundries in Silicon Valley and we were making the stuff and we had all the testing equipment and everything was there. And it's all been 
and I, I hate the idea that it's been exported, but it moved out of Silicon Valley. In fact, Silicon Valley now is really almost purely an intellectual pursuit um, because it's it's Stanford and the R&D labs and the people that understand how the business works that are in Silicon Valley and even in the virtual Silicon Valley, which is bigger than just around San Francisco Bay. And, uh, and you're working on the CHIPS Act and there are a lot of people that, you know, it's kind of great concept, wonderful. The government's going to put up tens of billions of dollars and get people the incentive to rebuild that whole infrastructure. And, and I, I, I have to challenge you, I guess, you know, that, that just, you know, uh, what is it? TSMC is building a plant in Arizona, but it's only able to build chips at, uh, well, it's about the three or four nanometer. So now that's too small. So like five or six nanometer, even after spending all this money, it's only going to be on the lagging edge mm. of chip development. And, you know, TSMC has become kind of the repository for doing anything leading edge. <laughs> so how, how did, when you're working on this, how do you, how do you kind of stay focused on the idea that we can regenerate that here in the U.S.? Well, I think, you know, there's two parts really to the the CHIPS um, efforts and the CHIPS Act specifically, which is that there's a, a big chunk that's about trying to bring back manufacturing to the U.S., which you're right, has been lost. Um, but, you know, we continue to be ahead on the design and um, equipment. I mean, companies like Applied Materials, Synopsis, Cadence, I mean, we continue to be the leader in terms of um, advancing the science associated with it, our universities, all that stuff. So there's, uh, you know, two parts. One is to bring back manufacturing, but the other is to stay ahead in research. And, and of course, as you know, um, Stuart, too, that a lot of the early work in computing was funded by the government. And one of the reasons why we had the early lead was government involvement. So everybody says, oh, government should take their hands off, hands off. I mean, the history of this industry is rife with uh, government as a purchaser as much as anything. Basically, it was government demand that drove an awful lot of early applications in computing. So, uh, so having the government involved is not really an outlier, and certainly other governments are involved as well. Um, my view on the manufacturing piece is that... Um, <clears throat> this was going to happen with or without the government. You know, the evolution of this industry over the past 30 years, call it, is to this geographic concentration of manufacturing in Southeast Asia, Taiwan, but also, you know, other countries in Southeast Asia. And um, it made sense to do that. A lot of people kind of think that was corporate malfeasance or incompetence or something. But it actually was uh, was a brilliant direction in that it's what's given us the enormous advances in technology. It concentrated the development so they could get scale efficiencies. Uh, places like Taiwan invested enormously in technical talent and building the talent to um, to be able to advance these things. And um, the the end result of it was uh, far better price performance and advancements than anybody ever could have imagined by concentrating it. But what people didn't realize as we kind of went down that path 
was it created all sorts of brittleness in other ways. Um, and I think, you know, the COVID epidemic, you know, showed this up in spades just in terms of, okay, one plant goes down because of COVID. When you've got that degree of concentration, everything down the supply chain for it was cut off. So, you know, the whole industry had has come to the conclusion that it, it was the geographic concentration that was now a problem. And it was short-term advantages, but it was long-term costly to have that much brittleness in the system. And that instead of a huge concentration, we really needed to have more of a regionalization approach. I mean, you still aren't going to go all the way to a distributed approach, but you know the idea of several centers around the world that can be redundant with each other so that if there is a pandemic, if there is a geopolitical disturbance, if there is a hurricane, I mean, climate change is creating enormous disruptions. So um, the demand, now Apple is the number one buyer of you know chips in the world. Apple's demanding to TSMC to have uh, plants outside of Taiwan. So the government is sort of, accelerating into a curve is the way I like to think about it. It's like customers are demanding this. This needs to happen for the security of the world, for national security, for economic security. And the government is trying to nudge it in a direction. So, all right, maybe those plants end up here rather than Argentina or somewhere. Uh, let's make sure that, you know, we are participants on the manufacturing side. So, so that's my view on the manufacturing. It's going to happen anyway. The chip tax is important to accelerate it and to make sure that we are participants in it. And R&D and manufacturing are sort of two sides of the same coin. And having a plant right there to be able to do your next generation work on lithography tools and metrology tools and all that stuff is, you know, important asset to have in the country. Um, we're not going to retake the bulk of manufacturing in the world. That's not going to happen. Uh, but we could develop a very strong regional manufacturing center. And the question of whether it's at, at the absolute leading edge or not, I think it's important that we're out there near the leading edge. But the leading edge stuff is actually a very small percentage of the total chips used. The vast majority of chips used are more in what I would call mature technologies. All national security chips are mature technologies. Mm. Um, and uh, they're really, you know, all the chips in medical devices, all the chips in automobiles. I mean, all of these chips are not leading edge. I mean, Apple's new iPhone is leading edge. But, yeah. you know, many things are not. And so the Chips Act really had one goal, which was to have leading edge in the U.S., but a whole separate goal was to strengthen the whole supply chain for a mature microelectronics to avoid these kind of disruptions in the future. Mm, yeah. Well, it's, it, we, we, uh, we, my firm does hard tech. I call it hard tech. And we like hard tech because any tech that's hard to do is worth investing in, mm. <clears throat> you know, along with everything else. But the, uh, and we just had, we had a chip company <clears throat> not actually making chips, but figuring out how to stack chips because the real leading edge right now, particularly if you want to put it in a in a phone or uh, other small devices, the, the, the chips are getting small and small. You can't make them any smaller, so you have to start stacking them one on top of the other. And, and that creates issues for how the processing happens inside the chip and between the chips. And uh, <clears throat> so we had a company that figured out a new uh, bonding mechanism using copper. And copper is highly, um, uh, what do we call it, you know? Conductive. Conductive. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. I do worry that 
he's remembering words better than I am, but they, uh, but highly conductive and boy, trying to figure out how to, how to get that company all the way through the process. So I actually ended up selling it before they finished the product, but then a big public company is now doing it. And, and, uh, and that company bought it thinking, yeah, this is going to change the business. And so it was a real endorsement of, of the investment and, we're waiting to make the money off of it. Well, that's one of the major goals. We, one part of the CHIPS Act and the part that I'm working on now exclusively is called the National Semiconductor Technology Center, the NSTC. And this was something Congress envisioned as a way to have a center for uh, research and excellence in design in the country. And so um, I'm spending a lot of time on this, but we set up three goals for this entity. And um, one of those goals is quite specifically to reduce the cost and time from idea to implementation. Mm -hmm. So that's what your team would have come across is there's enormous barriers between if you have a great idea that you want to implement in silicon, getting that from idea to the market is really expensive and really long. And so we have, oh, dozens of ideas about how we can reduce that to get the flywheel of innovation going oh, yeah. faster and faster to lower cost, lower cost. Enabling, I mean, venture investors can't even really do this technology anymore because it's too expensive too early. It's very dilutive capital too early. And yeah. if we can, through government programs, um, basically by accumulating a bunch of assets that uh, members of the community can use without having to go wrestle up those assets themselves, mm -hmm. then um, we enable that kind of innovation. It's not even the picking winners thing. It's not that at all. Oh, it's basically saying, yeah. let's create tools and capabilities and assets that the community can use that can, you know, we'd like to lower the cost and time in half or more in terms of yeah, being yeah. able to get those things through the pipeline. So yeah. that's one of the goals. That's okay, start. I got to put you on the spot. You got to start asking questions. Donna and I are having a great time yeah. here. Oh, I've, I've got some <laughs> questions here in the background. Uh, Donna, it seems like you've had a very interesting career, and uh, we've you know you've gone from uh, uh, Apple uh, PCs to uh, Palm to Handspring, Handspring to AI, uh, and it seems like there's one thread uh, that connects them all together, and that's supply chain. Is that accurate? Like you understand supply you know, chain. I have thought about it as a continuum, but not not really supply chain. Um, the way I've thought about it is my career has been, I mean, incredibly lucky from my perspective, but it's been at the um leading edge of computing in that it's been I've been at the forefront of every major generation of computing in my lifetime. I mean, PCs, uh, handhelds, smartphones, AI. So I've been on the forefront of each of those waves with kind of leading players in each case, uh, at least leading thinkers in each case of uh, how to, uh, you know, do this next generation of computing. So it's uh, for my from my perspective, my through line has been um, being on the forefront of, mm -hmm. you know, computing revolution after computing revolution and getting mm -hmm. to have a ringside seat at it, which I say, luckily, I mean, I should make clear, I'm a history major. I took absolutely no technology classes when I was in college. I'm a non-engineer in an engineer's world. And um, I've loved every minute of it, um, but it's it's been a little bit, you know, fortunate. And now, Stuart, 
too, told his origin story earlier. So I just want to digress and tell my origin story of how did this history major get into this business. And uh, I'll, I'll give you that story real quickly, which is um, I had, uh, after I graduated with a history degree from Yale, I went to work in banking, spent a couple of years uh, as a financial analyst and then a commercial lending officer at a money center bank. And as a part of that job, I did these uh, things that we would call spreadsheets today. And uh, I did them by hand and I would write out all the different, you know, uh, forecasts for somebody I wanted to give a loan to. And I'd go to loan committee and I would present it. And then they would say, yeah, but what if sales grow 10% instead of 15%? So uh, then I would go back and I literally would recalculate every number by hand. I had a little programmable calculator was quite proud. I could do multiple steps at a time on the thing. And then after um, that job, I went to business school. And one day I was in business school, Harvard Business School, and in walks into my class, um, Bob Frankston and Dan Brooklyn, and they had just invented BusyCalc and they mm. demonstrated BusyCalc on an Apple II little, you know, 48K machine, uppercase only, you know, the little monitor, you've seen pictures of it. And uh, they demonstrated this uh, product. And I knew nothing about computing. I didn't know what was the computer, what was the software. I had no idea of any of this stuff. But I just looked at that and I just said, that's going to change the world. I mean, putting in one number, 10% instead of 15% that rolls through that whole spreadsheet and doing that like that. I don't know anything about anything but banking. I know this thing's going to be on every banker's desk. And that was my change the life moment. I've told that to, you know, these guys later in life as I've met them at Agenda. Certainly, uh, Bob and Dan, I would have met at Agenda. And um, it was uh, one of those life changing moments where I like saw the future. It was like I was not a technologist, but uh, I saw the future. I saw the applications. I knew it was going to be on everybody's desk. And I just made a beeline for that industry and said, and that's where I want to be. And how did you get into the industry? How did how did how did you break in? Well, that's a funny story too. So, um, so they had interviews at Harvard Business School. I wanted to be in the industry, and so I started signing up for anybody who was interviewing from the industry. So I signed up for an interview. Intel was coming, and Tektronix, I think, and Apple was coming. So they had just gone public. They were in the news. They were a very exciting place, and so. I went to sign up for Apple's interview, but I was denied. It was a closed interview process and I was not accepted for a slot because obviously I had no technical background. So, <laughs> you know, they looked at my resume and went, not, 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 not her. And so literally this is a true story. I went to the little interview, Carol, where the person was interviewing people and I arrived first thing in the morning. Her name, I still remember her. I connected with her in later years. Her name was Jennifer. And I went to her and I just said, you know, uh, listen, I'm not on your schedule today, but I really need to talk to you because, um, you know, this is the future and, and I believe I can bring something to it and I want to be a part of this future. And she was like, OK, I don't have you on my schedule. I'm like, oh, I, I'll wait. I got all day. It's probably so, you know, she would take people over and over and in and out. They'd go. And then finally, by the end of the day, she was like, OK, OK, what's your story? Tell me what your deal is. And I basically went in and I made the following pitch. It's like, look, I know you're looking for technology people. I'm not a technology person, so I'm not going to be the person for your product development. But I would be a customer. I will understand your customers. You're going to sell to people like me. You need people like me who understand your customers too. And so um, that was the pitch that got me in the door. 
And in the end, I was the only person hired from Harvard Business School. I was the first Harvard Business School employee ever hired at Apple, as a matter of fact. And I ended up, ironically enough, working for distribution because actually the thing I didn't understand was we didn't, Apple didn't sell to customers, Apple sold to dealers. And the dealers yeah. sold to customers. Interesting. So it actually was uh, not as much of a fit as I thought at the time. And I ended up in this group distribution, which was essentially servicing the dealers. So I ended up in my first few years setting up all the systems to service the dealers, how to supply them with inventory, how to help them with, you know, different things that they were doing. So I was basically a key link between the company and the dealer network. Uh, so that that's sort of the story. It's a little bit crazy, but it, it you know it gives you a sense of how you know life sometimes happens and things take over and you you know you you and and also that persistence and resilience counts. I mean, you got to show up. You got to be clear about why you're a fit for something. You got to not you know uh, not just um, uh, you know you got you got to work to find the fits and work to place yourself in, in people's minds of where you can contribute. Mm, yeah particularly for a typical uh, applications. Go ahead, Stern. So, uh, Dad, how did you, you know, because you you interviewed Steve Jobs many times at Apple. How did you first get involved with Apple? I met him in uh, September of eight, 1981, I think it was. And because uh, there's this thing called the uh, Boston Personal Computer Group, Boston Computer BCS, Boston Computer Society. And as being at Inc. before they canned me, um, when they canned me, I was sitting there going, well, what am I going to do? And Jonathan Rotenberg, who I don't know where he actually ended up becoming a consultant, but the, but at the time he was not old enough to rent a car, is what I remember. And, uh, you know, I was at the, I was like five years older than him. And, uh, so he asked me to be on the board of BCS, and I took over the magazine there, which is what I did after I got canned by InfraWalden before I went to work for IDG. And uh, <clears throat> that was a lot of fun because we had no money. I could do anything I wanted to do, and nobody else knew what, the, what I was doing. And uh, uh, so I met Steve at the Boston Computer Society because Jonathan had established this very unique connection to Steve. And... Uh, was able to get Steve to show up and do speeches, which is generally speaking, pretty difficult. So I met him, talked to him a little. I discovered he was a year younger than I was. Bill Gates and I are the same age. It's like, this is done. It's got to be in the same, same group. I was born in 1952. And uh, if you're born in the early fifties, you're actually precisely the right age to join the personal computer revolution, right? Cause you'd be 20 in the, in the uh, 19, in the early 70s and uh you weren't really part of the generation that was doing the flower power thing and rebelling and all that kind of stuff you were the one right after that and that was when the personal computers started so all of the people that started companies were all just graduating from college at the same time i did same time Donna did. in fact we must have been pretty close to each other because i met dan and bob and at uh, visicorp i mean <laughs> excuse me software arts and uh and you know that was in cambridge and uh, they had the old chocolate factory on the river. And, you know, that was, I uh, was in uh, Boston doing Inc. Magazine. And uh, that was kind of how the whole connection happened. So there was stuff happening in Boston and there was stuff happening in Silicon Valley. And that was really the two epicenters for PC stuff. And then I moved 1983 
Stuart was born in California because he was born in 1985. And uh, my, his two older sisters were both born in Boston. And uh, so uh, it's a timing thing. And this is what Donna's kind of talking about. It's like we just happened to show up right when the whole thing started. And uh, so we saw it too. I mean, I think you've got to yeah. have your antenna well, up. You've got to be looking for opportunities for trends. I mean, yeah. I, I've never been an inventor of anything, but I can spot this stuff and go, wow, that's yeah. big. That's huge. I'm, I'm getting on that. I mean, the same thing about handheld computing. You know, when I first met Jeff Hawkins and he showed me, uh, it was a Sony Palm Top, uh, all in Japanese, one of the early handhelds. And I just saw that I, I had that same feeling I'd had with Bob and Dan. It was like, oh, my gosh, this is going to move from the desktop to your pocket. Whatever this tool could do in your pocket, it's going to be amazing. I want to be a part of that. So, you know, I have I have seen that sort of each generation turning. Aha, uh -huh, I get that. That is going to be important. It's hard to do. The early people are often not the winners. I mean, it is totally, you know, not like it's an easy life to pick being out there in the early uh, companies in terms of trying to be at the forefront. Uh, but gosh, what a fascinating uh, career it's been to watch this from, you know, a ringside seat and participate in it. Okay, yeah. I want to go into the the Palm Pilot because I remember there was one time where uh, my dad invited me to a where a Palm Pilot event where they rented out. Uh, I forget the baseball park in San Francisco what they're calling it now, but at various times it's AT and P T Candlestick. You're talking about Candlestick. Yeah, it's Candlestick. No, no, it wasn't Candlestick. It was no, no, Candlesticks down south. Yeah, it's, it uh... was it was AT and T Park. Uh, but whatever they called it back then. Wow. And then they, and then they, they, I think it was green day or some van played in the, in the field. Uh, and then everybody went on a yacht afterwards. And one of the things was a Palm pilot uh, given out as a gift uh, in a gift bag. And I remember this on. Being I, I think there's two different times. I, I can say there's a fair number of years in between those two things. Cause the, I'd have to find out when that park was built. It's now called Oracle Park, I think. But they, uh, uh, and it was an AT&T park when it first opened, but it, it couldn't be more than 20 years old. Um, brand new baseball park, you know. And so I remember that. That was actually a an event held by a magazine. Uh, and it failed later, but it was published by Time Inc. So it was the same organization as Fortune and, and Time and stuff like that. And they started a tech magazine <laughs> They helped that it was Green Day. And uh yeah, I remember I remember going there, but that was much later. Well after the Palm Pilot. So they must have been giving something else out. Yeah, and there, it could be a memory that was mixed all together. Uh Don, any, yeah. any anything? Do you remember that at all? Is that is that the I don't I don't remember that at all. Yeah. Um and you know, it was a time when we went through those early years of a lot of excesses. I mean, there were like excessive launches and excessive, you know, events and just all sorts of, you know, crazy stuff we were doing to attract attention. And um it was definitely a crazy time. So I could imagine something like that, but I don't remember that specific one. When you told the story though, it reminded me of a, a different story, which is that um you know, when we were doing the Palm Pilot in the early years, we were trying to figure out, it was kind of a personal tool. How do we get into business? How do we get into business? So we decided we would um, partner with IBM. And we had a long discussion and relationship we did with IBM where essentially they private labeled the device. So they did an IBM version of the Palm Pilot. And it came in an IBM color with an IBM logo and all that stuff on it. 
And the idea was they would go sell these things into uh, enterprises at, you know, tens of thousands while we were selling them through, you know, director dealers or whatever in thousands, you know. And so it was a very exciting thing for us. Didn't work out at all. What the salespeople at IBM ended up doing was uh, they kind of saw them as like party favors. So rather than going in and trying to make a 10,000 unit sale, they'd rather focus on a mainframe or a mini sale. And they would just give these out to executives as gifts. Uh, and that's what reminded me when you said to them giving it out was um, IBM just would scatter them around. And it just wasn't worth a sales rep's time to try to figure out how to sell a $200 device if they could put their time into a $2 million device. So totally makes sense. But it, it made me realize, you know, when you think about selling products in general, matching up the sales channel to what you have is pretty important. And if you if you go outside too far from what the core sales channel is capable and interested and motivated and compensated to do, uh, you will not succeed, even if your product is absolutely fantastic. And so that's kind of what IBM did with our, our little devices. They gave them away. It's funny because I, I have an equivalent of that, which was, you know, I started a newsletter and newsletters were easy to print and, you know, didn't cost very much to make. And so most people have did newsletters, but give them away for free. And I wouldn't, wouldn't allow anybody to read my newsletter unless they paid me my 500 bucks. And uh, the same happened with the conference, although the price was much higher. And I, it's a lifelong lesson to me that if you give something away for free, you basically communicate that it's not worth anything. And uh, so I use this with my companies now as a VC and they're going like, wow, that's brilliant, Stuart. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. <laughs> pricing, and pricing, pricing is the point, right? You know, if you give stuff away for free or if you make it too cheap, you don't communicate. So price is how you communicate value to customers. And so that's how I expanded my, my experience into a theory. Anyway, I think we're pushing it here, Stuart. So you tell me. Sure, let's do five to 10 more minutes. Okay. Yep. Uh, so Donna, what were the biggest kind of uh, moments of like most memorable memorable moments at Palm, uh, either whether they were struggle or success? Oh my gosh, there were so many. There were so many highs and so many lows at <laughs> Palm. It was, I mean probably not even aware of the tortured corporate history here, but, you know, uh, Palm, um, you know, was an independent company when I joined our first product, the Zoomer with Casio was a failure. It was, you know, that was what we taught, how we learned what we needed to do next. And Jeff came up with the whole design for the Palm Pilot. And then we couldn't raise money. Our VCs wouldn't support um, more effort in it. They saw it, you know, as a failure. They didn't take it as, you know, as lessons learned and how to uh, really advance this. And so uh, we ended up having to sell the company in order to finance the, the product. We sold it to U.S. Robotics. U.S. Robotics subsequently sold themselves to 3Com. We subsequently were a part of 3Com. We spun off and, and created Handspring. They spun off the OS. We recombined with uh, wow. 3Com. That's like the shortest version of it I've ever done. And oh, that's amazing. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> it was torture the whole way. I mean, it was like so many moments of of angst and agony. And are we going to get the money? And are we not? And you know, I mean. The product itself was brilliant and very well accepted and very exciting, but the business side was um, was uh, a huge struggle, huge struggle for many, 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 many years. So 
Uh, that's why I say, I mean, I remember, you know, incredible highs, uh, agenda introducing the Palm Pilots, seeing the reaction, um, seeing the numbers go off the charts. I mean, we when we introduced the Palm Pilot, we sold uh, a million units in 18 months. At that time, that was the fastest adopted consumer electronics wow. in the history, in history. I mean, it was incredible to be a part of making history. I mean, we were doing $100 million in quarterly revenue within six quarters. We were the fastest growth company in American business history wow. uh, at that point in time. And so, you know, I think that um, those were incredible highs, um, you know, uh, really something to just feel, you know, be a part of. But there were incredible lows and challenges. I mean, I made a huge mistake at Handspring and signed a massive lease because we were growing so fast. The fastest growth company in American business history. I was Handspring, not Palm. And it was like, oh, my God, we need more people. We need more space. And I executed this big lease. And then uh, then the, the recession hit and cut demand and there were other problems. And all of a sudden we were in financial trouble and I had to get out of this lease and I had to make an enormous payment to the landlord to get out of this lease. And that nearly bankrupted us. So it was a little bit like Apple story, you know, really incredible high and then boom, you know, uh, incredible low. And then we, you know, merged back with Palm and that was full of all sorts of angst. So, you know, it, it really, I, I mean, I'm sure glad I did it. I sure wouldn't want to relive it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, thank you guys so much. Uh, uh, Donna, uh, is there anywhere my listeners can find out more about what you're working on right now? Well, you can certainly look at the work we're doing in AI at, at Numenta, numenta.com. So N-U-M-E-N-T-A.com. Um, if you're interested in our work on the CHIPS Act, uh, we've just set up a new um, nonprofit entity to be this national research center, and it's called NATCAST, N-A-T-C-A-S-T. So natcast.org, uh, we have we are indeed posting job openings. So that might be of interest to some of your listeners. So uh, go to natcast.org and please sign up for our newsletter there if you want to know about our work on the CHIPS Act. So I think those are the two the two big ones to follow what, what I'm up to these days, Numenta and CHIPS. Thank you both so much. Great to see you guys, uh, Stuart, yeah, too. Great you, to reconnect after, after all these years. Great to see yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Crazy Wisdom. As always, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube by searching for Stuart Alsop and Crazy Wisdom. You'll find us. And uh, yeah, I really love to hear from any of you listeners uh, about, you know, a lot of you have been listening for a long time, and I don't know who you are. I would love to know who you are. Uh, but as always, feel free to remain anonymous. What I love about the internet is we can choose to be a personality on the internet, or we can remain anonymous. We can do pseudonymity. But uh, yeah, if you do, if you do feel like reaching out, I'd love to hear about you know your thoughts on this particular episode or any of the other episodes. And uh, hope you have a great day.